Well, today we begin our journey through the book of Numbers in earnest, having uh, taken a little time last week to look at sort of the broad scope of the book uh, in, our, in our little survey time as we scan through it. We're going to read portions together today, but you're going to need to do most of the reading on your own in Numbers chapters 1 and 2, and I do encourage you, I want to thank you, by the way, those of you who have been reading and sending me uh, text messages and questions and comments about it. I love knowing that you are in the Word preparing for Sunday as God prepares your hearts, but I would encourage you to continue to do so as you read through the book of Numbers. Um, today, like I said, we're going to just take a look at pieces of it. You'll need to do most of that on your own. But before we go to Numbers, uh, and, and we will, trust me, we'll get there. But before we do that, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be starting here in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, we'll start with verse 1. We're going to read through uh, chapter 4, verse 6. And this will help set the stage for understanding the heart of the message that we'll find in the first two chapters of Numbers. The heart of that message is our core reality, that God requires His people to order every aspect of their lives around Him. Read with me. You can follow along. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, 
which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to, carry, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Colossae, is saying what God has inspired him to say for us as well. And it's the same message that has always been at the center of what God was telling his people. Live for him. The picture we have here is that Jesus Christ has impacted them, changed them so much as believers that there's no reason to live for the things of this world. Because in Christ's cross, being united with him in faith, we died. As as Paul says of himself in Galatians 2.20, we had that as a memory verse a little while ago. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Everything I live in the flesh is Christ living in me. He's carrying these things out. My purpose for being, the center of my existence, my every thought is geared toward pleasing the Lord. That's why he can say, whatever you do, whether it's in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he can tell slaves, look, even when, you're, when your master, even when your boss is a jerk, none of you have any idea what that's like, 
certainly not as slaves, as literal slaves did to their masters, even when they're unjust, when you obey them, do everything that you do for the glory of God. Not because your master on earth deserves it, but because you're serving a master in heaven. That's where our life is. And the glory that He has will return to us when He returns to us, when He returns to reign. Okay, now with that, we have all this, this kind of color already. Let's go back to the beginning of Numbers. Numbers chapter 2. If you're just joining us, <clears throat> excuse me, Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. I, on a podcast the other day, I heard it compared to uh, Fast and the Furious, uh, the fourth installment, and it, how the sometimes in these long series of movies, the individual movies can get lost in the wash. That can happen with books of the Bible as well. As we talked about last time, Numbers is the continuation of the story of God and His people that began in Genesis. And as we pick up the story here, this is the action that left off at the end of Exodus with an interlude of information in the book of Leviticus. And here we are at Numbers chapter 1. All right, so we'll... We'll read here the first 19 verses, then we'll jump ahead toward the end of the chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name one by one. You and Aaron are to count according to their divisions all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each of them the head of his family, is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. And then he gives the list of these names. From Reuben, Eliezer, son of Shadur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, son of Zuri Shaddai. From Judah, Nashon son of Aminadab, from Issachar, Nethanel, son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, son of Helon, from the sons of Joseph, notice Joseph is one tribe divided into two, two half-tribes here, from Ephraim, Elishema, son of Amahud, from Manasseh, Gamaliel, son of Pedazer, from Benjamin, Abidan, son of Gideoni, from Dan, Ahazer, son of Amishadai, from Asher, Pagiel, son of Okran. From Gad, Eliasaph, son of Duel. From Naphtali, Ahira, son of Enon. These were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been specified, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people registered their ancestry by their clans and family, and the men 20 years old or more were listed by name, one by one, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he counted them in the desert of Sinai. And then he goes through the listing of the numbers of the census of the men who were old enough and fit for battle from each of the tribes. 
Jump ahead, if you would, to verse 44. These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the twelve leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites, twenty years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. The ancestral tribe of the Levites, however, was not counted along with the others. The Lord had said to Moses, You must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant law, over all its furnishings and everything belonging to it. They're to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They're to take care of it and encamp around it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down, and whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death. The Israelites are to set up their tents by divisions, each of them in their own camp under their standard. The Levites, however, are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the covenant law so that my wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the covenant law. The Israelites did all this just as the Lord commanded Moses. Father, as we encounter your word today, may we be encountered by it. Remind us that this is more than just us reading your word. Your word is reading us. May we interact with this text, understanding that it is only by your spirit that we can receive and apply it in our lives. Make the book live to us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God requires His people to order every aspect of their lives around Him. That is a pretty simple statement, and yet, as a core reality, that's a tough thing for us to grasp. We don't like God requiring stuff. We don't like the idea of requirements. We want things that are just effective, that are, that are affective, that is, that are emotive, that just naturally come up within us because we feel like doing things. And even as we celebrate Mother's Day today, some of you are, are going to be doing special things for your mom because it's Mother's Day. I hope and pray that you honor your mom the other 364 days as well. But when it is Mother's Day, brother, don't miss it. Pay attention. There are certain requirements in life that we must pay attention to, and they don't take away from the essence of the thing. They don't take away from its importance. They don't even take away from its meaningfulness to us personally, unless we let them. In the same way, as God requires, when, when God commands Moses, it's not a request, it is a demand. Moses, this is what you are to do. Do it. He says to his people, this is what you are to do. Do it. There's no wiggle room for it. And we don't like that very much. 
And yet, it is central to our understanding God rightly. We cannot understand God rightly on our own terms. We have to approach Him on His. God requires His people to order every aspect of their lives around Him. In other words, the people of God must order every aspect of their lives around the living God in their midst. God at the center. If we recognize, if we place our hope in the reality of God, then we must recognize what He says in His Word, that He is in our midst. He's here with us among us, and yet at the same time is separate from us. He is holy. We're created in His image, and so there is a likeness of God in us. He's not altogether different, and yet at the same time, He is altogether different. He is other. He is holy. Our memory verse for today is Romans eleven thirty six, 36. For from Him... And through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, as we're getting into this, the, the census isn't the point. It is the point, but it isn't the point. When we're talking about the book of Numbers, the numbers aren't the point. It's part of the point. It's a subplot, if you will, and these censuses here and, and then also in chapter 26 give structure to the book along with several repeated phrases that we'll see as we go along. And God structures this as He delivers this word through Moses to us so that there is a rational, intelligent progression of the text following the basic devices of language and, and uh, writing that we would recognize. We don't need to be looking for special magic codes in the Bible, and we don't need to throw away parts of it. We need to recognize that God has inspired every word and that He has done so to reveal Himself, not to confuse us. So, with that in mind, why in the world are we talking about this census? Why would we need to understand this as important? Well, first, notice this. God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. Everything that we see in Scripture hinges on these covenant promises of God. I'm going to invite you to turn back to Genesis. Keep numbers marked. We'll be back there. But turn back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. God has called Abram out of Ur. He hasn't changed his name yet to Abraham. That comes later. But as he's doing this here, he, he renews his covenant from chapter 12 with Abram. Here's what happens, starting with verse 1 of Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, before we even get anywhere else, let's just take a second. I, I, I would love to just preach that text. I don't have time for it, so let me just kind of get us focused in on it. God is saying, there are scary things about you, right? You've got all, you've got all these other nations. It doesn't matter. Don't be afraid. Why does he say don't be afraid? Because Abraham was, or Abram here was prone to be afraid. 
God doesn't tell you not to be afraid unless he needs to tell you not to be afraid, right? Don't be afraid. Why? Because I am your shield. I am your protection. I am your defender. Not only that, I am your very great reward. He's not just blessing Abram with stuff. He's not just blessing Abram with a land, which he's promised, with uh, with. Uh, a nation that will come from him, which he's promised, and he'll reiterate. He's blessing him with his own very presence. I am your very great reward. Pressing on. We only got through verse 1, so we're going to have to speed up. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. Verse 2, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Notice he's missing the point here a little bit, right? I'm giving you myself. But he says, what, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now this sounds sad on the one hand that, that, that he is troubled that he doesn't have an heir. And when we can see that from a human perspective, But there's an element of this, at least a partial element, and perhaps the preponderance of Abram's concern is that God had promised him things. He's going to restate those things here. But God had promised him that he would give him, he would make of him a great nation. How in the world is he going to do that if now becoming an old man ain't got no kids? It's kind of tough. So he's going to have to give his stuff, he thinks, to his servant rather than to his offspring. He is concerned that God's promise won't be able to be upheld. He hasn't grasped yet that when God makes a promise, you don't have to worry about whether he's going to keep it. It's going to happen. Then, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now, the Bible has much to say in favor of adoption throughout the 66 books. It's, it's how we become Christ followers. We're adopted by God, and he makes us his children in full standing with Christ himself. But his promise to Abraham was that his own flesh and blood would inherit what God had for him. Verse 5, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. (laughs) If indeed you can count them, if you've ever tried that, it can be a dizzying experience. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Notice verse 6, pivotal verse, not only in the life of Abram, but in the life of of every Christian. Paul comes back and leans heavily on this for the justification by faith, by grace through faith that he teaches in the New Testament. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? 
So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, <clears throat> excuse me, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, <clears throat> Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Back to Numbers. We see in this census that God's promise to Abraham to make his offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore too numerous to count, is being fulfilled here through counting. Now, in Genesis chapters 37-ish to 50, we see the story unfold of Jacob's sons who become the 12 tribes and the delivery of Joseph into slavery by his brothers and out of slavery by the hand of God. And while Joseph is there, his family is at peace. And through a series of events the Lord put together, Jacob's family immigrates to Egypt, where Joseph is now in charge. And we're told that there are 70 of them in all. Now, there's some debate about the numbers in numbers, in that uh, there is... Uh, it's tough to swallow, right? It's tough to swallow and say, wait a minute, 600,000 fighting men here? That's more than you saw in the Civil War in a much larger space. That's, that's a pretty big deal. So if you're talking about the full number, including those who are not suitable to, to serve in the army and the women and the children, you're talking about 2.5 million people, maybe more. But 2.5 seems like a pretty acceptable number in most uh, most scholars would place it in that general area. Now, there is some debate because there are scholars out there uh, who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, who uh, believe that perhaps there was a literary device that was understood by the readers of the time that would exaggerate these numbers. So it's not a deceptive exaggeration, but it was understood in the way it was read. That's entirely possible. I'm not here to quibble over these things. But one way or another, what we can see very clearly that's a whole lot more than 70, right? So God brings them out of Egypt 
with vastly more than they went into captivity with. And while they were suffering, God was prospering them. God was keeping his promise, his covenant with Abram. Do you see how that works? It doesn't matter what we're going through. God is reminding them that when I make a promise, I keep that promise. Not only is he making this promise of prosperity in number to Abram, he promises him a land, and they are coming to this land. They're only a month out of Egypt when we're reading this. It's hard for me to continue to remind my, my brain of that because there's such a space in the book. But in, uh, in Exodus 40, we see that, that they're only one month prior to what they're getting here. And then in between, we have the giving of the law in Leviticus. But, man, we're seeing this, this vast number of slaves. A month ago, they were in slavery. Now they are the people of God gathered together at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they went from 70 to 2.5 million. Even if you allow for a literary device, that's a huge change. And just as God had told Abram way back in Genesis 15, they spent 400 years in a land not their own, and God brought them out. This census is evidence. It's a reminder to them that God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. Now, when God says it's too numerous to count, that's, that's a great promise. And yet, here we are counting them. But God's not done fulfilling that promise. In Galatians <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, we read this. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul's couching this, uh, he's bringing this point up in the middle of an argument about legalism in the, in the church. So he brings it back to faith. But here's, here's the point that I want to see from it today. Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 7, understand then that those who have faith, those who have trusted Christ, are children of Abraham. Abraham, your offspring, are going to be more than just your offspring. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul in Romans 9 and 11 make it very clear that not everyone who comes from Abraham's bloodline is part of the family of promise. And he gives a distinction between the son of Hagar and the son of Sarah, the one who came from the promise, the one who comes when it, everything seemed impossible, not by, by Abraham and Sarah scheming for him to have a child with his with uh, her servant that was the flesh but the child that comes from the promise leads not only to the people of israel proper 
but to all who would trust in Christ by faith. Paul says those are the children of Abraham. God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. Notice, secondly, God establishes order in the process. God establishes order in the process. You can look at Genesis 1. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but in Genesis 1, we see that very well-known verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But don't forget what happens next. God creates the heavens and the earth, and the earth that He creates is chaotic. Right? It's formless and empty. And God speaks order into the chaos. As God creates everything, He creates everything with order and complexity that we can observe today. I think it's great that God has given us science. He's given us technology. He's given us the ability to open it up, to look at the small things, to look at the great things, and to be able to put together a picture of an orderly world. But here in Numbers, God gives them an ordered process. Moses, I want you to, to take these folks. You're going to need help. You can't just go and count two and a half million people by yourself. But you're going to delegate this by family, and you're going to take this census, and they're going to be grouped in what really amounts to regiments by their families. And they're going to have their family crest, if you will, as they have their banners and standards to group them together. And they're going to camp together in that manner. It's going to be very important for them to maintain order. If you can just imagine, trying to, if you've ever gotten a family vacation together, right? You need to have a healthy supply of Excedrin and Maalox and Mylanta, I should say. And as you're doing that, Maalox too probably, I don't, know, but I don't know what you're cooking. But anyway, it gets chaotic. Try taking two and a half million complaining people across the wilderness. You're going to need some order. So God gives them order in the process itself and uses that process to order them. And then in chapter 2, He arranges them. All right, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Chapter 2, verse 1 and following. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family. So he's already grouped them together, and he lays them out as to how they're supposed to do it. Okay, so for example, verse 3, On the east, toward the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. The leader of the people of Judah is Nashon, son of Amedadab. His division numbers 74,600. Let me just pause for a moment to say Judah is the largest of the tribes, and we see Judah's prominence throughout the Scriptures as it eventually becomes the remnant when the kingdom falls apart, when Solomon takes the throne. And God fulfills His promises through Judah, the line of which would produce Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, who reigns on the throne forever, according to God's covenant with David. Then he goes on to group the other tribes in there. And he, he gives them uh, an arrangement so that they are encamped. You can read it for yourself. So that they are encamped on all sides around the tabernacle where the tent of meeting is. 
They have to stay back a distance from it. And we read already that the Levites then would occupy, occupy that space between so that the wrath of a holy God would not fall on unholy, common people when they approach. So God places His set-apart servants, the Levites, between the people and the holy place. God brings order to the process, and He brings order to the, to the tribes through the process. Next, notice that God deals with His people individually and collectively. He deals with His people individually and collectively. Looking at, uh, at what God says through Paul in Romans 9, that not all who belong to Abraham's DNA line are also part of the faith line. They don't, just because you're of Abraham doesn't mean you're of Abraham. Okay, it's a spiritual descent. And that is true here as well. The point that Paul is making is that not everybody who is Jewish is actually someone who belongs to God. And we see that throughout the Old Testament that there are individual children of God who by their lack of faith and disobedience turn out to not actually be children of God. They have the pedigree, but they don't have the faith. They don't have the obedience. They choose their way instead of God's way. And they live essentially like the pagans around them. They do their thing instead of God's. So God deals with the nation. He makes a covenant with Abraham that he will keep for the people of Israel. God deals with his church as a body, as one body. And God's promises for the church, Christ's intent for his bride, cannot be thwarted. He will do everything that he has planned to do and it will not fail. And yet, as individuals, we have to step out in faith ourselves. We don't get to ride on the coattails of others. My mother may not have done everything right raising us when she was a young mother trying to uh, figure out how to do things, but she got the most important stuff of all right. And one thing that she really hammered to us was that God has no grandchildren. You don't get in because of my faith. You have to have your own. You have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Nobody gets to heaven because you're married to a Christian. Now you have an advantage because the Christian you're married to can sanctify your life, can bring you into the teachings of the Word, can help you see reality. But ultimately, you have to make the choice to follow Jesus and nobody can do that for you. In the same way we see here in the book of Numbers that God deals with the people by their tribes, their identity in their tribes matters, and yet we will recognize here as we go along that this entire generation of individuals will fall in the wilderness. And God will keep His promise to the group, to His children, even though He will bring consequences for their choices to the individuals who fail to follow Him. God deals with His people individually and collectively. He made and keeps His covenant with Abraham, yet not for every individual who shares Abraham's DNA. Family and heritage matter, but nobody gets a special pass. Next, notice this. God prepares His people for war. 
God prepares His people for war. Now that is hard for us a lot of times to swallow as New Testament Christians. We, you know, we see the teachings of Jesus and we think, well, it's impossible for God to be in favor of war. We see the wars around us, which are inevitably unjust because they're fought based on human pride, human sinfulness. We want and we can't get, so we covet and we kill. And then we have to defend against those who covet and kill. But here, this is a different situation. The term holy war gets thrown around a lot in in not-so-pleasant ways these days. But this is truly the holy and just war as God is carrying out His purposes. It's a direct command from the Lord. Think back to what we read in Genesis 15. As God tells Abraham, you're going to be uh, you're going to be it, your your people will be in bondage for 400 years, and when they come out of this, in the fourth generation they will return to this land where He has them now. That's where we are in this point in the story. And the reason for that is because the Amorites, the people living in that land, their sin hasn't reached its full measure yet. By the time we get to the book of Joshua, but it, it we're approaching this place now, when they go in to take the land, it's because the sin of the people in the land has reached its full measure. And God is taking action. God foresaw it. He foreknew it. He foreordained it. And He prepares His people here for it. When they came out of Egypt, He took them on a particular route to avoid interaction with the Philistines and with the other nations so that his people would not get discouraged and turn back. Now, he's preparing them for conquest. The census is only of those who can serve in the military. Now, if that were a minor point, he wouldn't be repeating it in every paragraph. Why does he keep saying it? Because that's the point of the census. God is preparing his people for war. Psalm 1834 The psalmist writes, He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. We see in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, that the weapons of our warfare are not like the weapons of the world's warfare. We're not talking about bows or guns and tanks. We're talking about spiritual forces. And we have an armor that He provides for us in Ephesians 6. And we're told to put on the armor of God. God is preparing His people for a spiritual war where He prepares Israel for physical war that is representing that spiritual war, driving out the the wicked from the land so that He can give His people their inheritance. There is a wickedness in us that must be driven out. We have an enemy of our souls who does battle against us. And far too often, the man inside, the flesh, joins with our enemy to fight against us. But there is a truer truer person in us when we have received Christ. We are empowered and guided by His Holy Spirit living within us so that our will joyfully conforms with the will of God and we desire what He desires. And therefore, He says, you can wage war against that flesh. You can wage war against the forces of darkness coming against you by putting on the armor I've provided. 
Not only does God prepare His people for war, notice also God prepares His people for worship. God prepares His people for worship. The Lord organizes His people in such a way that their lives are not separated from their worship. As He numbers and arranges them for military life, He also establishes principles and practices of worship by setting the the tribe of Levi apart to handle the holy things and as sort of a buffer zone between the people and their holy God. By setting apart the Levites, which we'll get into a little bit more next time, God is doing this for their good and their protection. They just witnessed a month ago, maybe a little more than a month ago, but you know, in that picture, they just witnessed a month ago two of Aaron's own sons die for approaching the Lord presumptuously. You can find that story in Leviticus 10, specifically verses 1 and 2. God sets apart an authorized tribe to handle all the holy things according to a specific instruction on behalf of the people. Those who are not authorized must be put to death. God takes His worship very seriously. We must approach God on His terms, not on our own. Not not only will they serve at the tabernacle, but the Levites will encamp around it. It gives that space and separation to protect them from holy judgment and wrath. God not only prepares His people for war, God prepares His people for worship. Next point we need to recognize here is that God is the center of life for those who are His. God is the center of life for those who are His. This is to be the daily, moment-by-moment reality for God's people, both then and now. It's not a matter of pulling out of life and and cloistering ourselves away in some kind of a spiritual quarantine. We are in the world. We live in the world. It's a matter of living life in this world every day with the Lord at the center. We don't belong to this world. We don't fix our eyes on earthly things, but we set our hearts our minds, our focus on things above. When we fixate down here, then the down here is the center of our lives. Where we place our treasure, where we find things that we value and cherish, it's where our heart is. Just as the life of Israel was to be fully centered on and devoted to the Lord, so our living and moving and breathing and doing must be fully ordered around the reality of Christ. As the Apostle Paul said in Acts 17, 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being. And he was speaking to Gentiles at the time. Not only did God group the people in preparing them for war. But he had them gather around the tent of meeting. At the center of everything is the manifest presence of God. That's the purpose of the tabernacle. When they come out of Egypt, 
Moses goes up away from the people with a few specified individuals who were authorized to come onto the mountain at the foot of the mountain. And he meets with God up on Mount Sinai away from the people. Now in this covenant that God is making with them at Sinai, God comes down into the midst of them. And at the center of everything that they are and do is the representation of God's presence among them. The tent of meeting at the tabernacle where the covenant, the the tablets of the covenant are placed. Where God gives His law and places it in the center of them. In the same way that in Christ the law of God is placed in our hearts in the very core of who we are. It's crucial for us to recognize that not only are they around the tent of meeting, as we read at the beginning of chapter 2, they're facing the tent of meeting. The camps are oriented so that their focus is on the tabernacle. Now, obviously, they can't all see the tabernacle. Two and a half million people? Of course not. I can't even see from the back row if I'm sitting behind Ronnie back there or something else. But their focus, their attention, this is a physical illustration of what God has called them to as a spiritual reality. That every part of our lives, every part of Israel's life, every part of my life, it's actually the requirement of every single human being ever created from the garden. We lost it in Genesis 3. God gives it back to us in this special, unique covenant with the people that He calls out so that we have our lives oriented around Him in whom we live and move and have our being. God is the center of life for those who are His. All right, so with all of this, we're talking about living for him right so what does it mean to love the lord with all i am in matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37 also recorded in mark and luke jesus affirmed the pinnacle of all the commandments as what we find in deuteronomy 6 5 jesus replied love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind you may remember as we went through uh, just recently Deuteronomy 6, multiple times as we looked at parenting. Everything that they did in their coming in and going out and their standing up and and lying down and walking around living, they were to have the Word of God connected all the time. Put Put it on your walls, put it on your doorposts, put it on your hands, put it on your head. Most of all, put it in your heart. Everything that God's people were to do They were to do for Him and through Him and with an eye on Him. And He gives them this command that Jesus says is the summary of all of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now throughout the book of Numbers, God is said to be in the midst of His people. We'll see that phrase come up several times in the coming chapters. And he's arranged the tribes here as a physical illustration of this greater spiritual reality. 
Not only are the tribes encamped around the manifest presence of God, but they're facing in toward the tent of meeting. The focus of God's people, the arrangement of their daily living and moving, is to be centered on Him. This is not merely some theoretical, esoteric kind of idea for us to talk about on Sunday and then walk away from. You and I, today, must order our lives in such a way practically taking hold of ordering our lives in such a way as to make living for jesus the very center of our purpose and practical reality this must must inevitably alter the way i approach my coming in and going out my career my choosing of a mate my entertainment my view of my own identity my friendships my physical health my education my sexuality, literally every single aspect of my daily living. So I need to ask myself, and you need to ask yourself, what things do I tend to let creep into the center of my life? You see, that's what idolatry is at its core. If my focus is to be on God, and instead I'm focusing on Baal, Well, that's idolatry. Baal is blocking my view of God. The thing that I put my attention on, that I value, that I trust in more than God's Word, becomes for me an idol. No matter how important it might seem to us in this life, Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Love the Lord above all else. No other thing slipping into the center of my attention before Him. No other thing holding my trust more than His Word. That is actually idolatry. I must constantly examine my life to see what I may have allowed to slip into my center. Where God alone belongs. My focus must remain on the presence of God so that the Lord who reigns over all the earth reigns in me. I can't let my job become more important. I can't let my spouse or my children or my parents become more important. I certainly can't let my my pursuit of pleasure and entertainment become more important. How easy it is for us to say, you know, I would love to spend more time in the Bible, but I don't have time all that means is in that same 24 hours that every other human being has ever had you thought something else was more important than god well i'm too busy to go to church today busy with what that thing has crept into the center i'm too busy to gather with god's people i'm too busy to pray Man, you're too busy not to pray. The moment I become too busy and something else is in the center, i got to pray to get God back in the center. i got to get my focus right. I have to reorient my life. Oh, but preacher, you don't know the things in my life. <laughs> Maybe I don't, but you do. There's still only one that should be at the center. 
you're sensible people. You can work out the details for yourself. So with that in mind, I need to ask myself, in what areas do I need to rearrange my life to put Christ at the center of everything? When I notice these tendencies in myself, the things that I tend to let creep into the center, I need to take practical steps to orient my camp, if you will, so that my focus is on Him, so that my purpose is in Him, so that I'm doing what we read in Colossians, I'm setting my heart on things above and that is shaping how I do things down here below. Ask yourself in what areas you might need to rearrange your life to put Christ at the center of everything. Time has escaped me, so I'm going to wrap this up here as quickly as I can. <laughs> so another 45 minutes or so will be good. Now this idea of placing Christ at the center of my life, of Loving Him with All I Am is well captured in one of my favorite hymns. It's an Irish poem and melody from the 6th century. I think you're all familiar with it, but let, let me read the powerful lyrics to you as we draw our time to a close. Be Thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word, I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, and I thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and Thou only first in my heart. O King of glory, my treasure Thou art. O King of glory, my victory won. Rule and reign in me till Thy will be done. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. God requires His people to order every aspect of their lives around Him. The people of God must order every aspect of their lives around the living God in their midst. For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, be honored and glorified by our songs by our prayers, by our study today. Father, do not allow us, forbid it, Lord, that we should walk away from this moment unchanged. Lord, nobody here needs to hear anything that I have to say from my own heart and mind. We need to hear from your Spirit, from your Word. And so, Lord, as we leave this place, as we leave with songs of praise on our minds and on our hearts, I pray that you would cause it to linger within us. That on this wonderful Lord's Day, as we celebrate our mothers, that we would first and foremost celebrate you with all that is within us. These things we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.